Maybe seated. Amen to that. Uh, community group leaders, <clears throat> so sorry. I totally forgot to call you forward and um, all that, but we've got some of them teaching right now. So community group leaders, we might come back at the end of the service or we might come back next week. So sorry. You had an email saying be ready to come forward. So um, I want to uh, just keep in front of you, church, your attention. Um, Worldview Weekend uh, will take place May 10th and 11th, and uh, going to be saying more about that in the weeks to come, but for now, I just want to encourage you, mark your calendars. This is going to be an epic event at Trinity, and uh, so much planning has already gone into um, this weekend, and uh, yeah, I'll just hold off and say more at a later date soon. Once a slave, now a son. I was sitting around in the family room yesterday when my son Tim asked me if I had heard of the social, social scorecard in China. The, the, the what? And he began to describe it, and I said, shoot me some articles. So, reading from the New York Post, September 2018. China's chilling dictatorship is moving quickly to introduce social scorecards by which all citizens will be monitored 24-7 and ranked on their behavior. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> Can you imagine? An active pilot program has already seen millions of people each assigned a score out of 800 and either reap its benefits or suffer its consequences depending on which end of the scale they fall. Under the social credit scheme, points are lost and gained based on readings from a sophisticated network of 200 million surveillance cameras. A figure set to triple in the next 18 months. <laughs> the program has been enabled by rapid advances in facial recognition, body scanning, and geo-tracking. The data is combined with information collected from individuals' government records, including medical and educational, along with their financial and internet browsing histories. Overall scores can go up and down in real time, dependent on the person's behavior, but they can also be affected by the people you associate with. For instance, this is actually from the Australian Broadcasting Company, says, quote, if your best friend or your dad says something negative about the government, you'll lose points. <laughs> oh, my goodness. If people keep their promises, they can go anywhere in the world. If people break their promises, they won't be able to move an inch. But it doesn't take much to end up on the wrong side of the scale with an estimated 10 million people already paying the price of a low rating. Jaywalking, late payments on bills or taxes, buying too much alcohol, or speaking out against the government, each costs citizens points. Other mooted punishable offenses include spending too long playing video games, 
How you guys doing? <laughs> Wasting money on frivolous purchases and posting on social media. Penalties range from losing the right to travel by plane or train, social media account suspensions, and being barred from government jobs. Business Insider reports that, quote, punishments might include throttling down your internet speed, banning you from the best job schools or hotels, and if you don't walk your dog with a leash or allow it to be a, or, or if you allow it to be a public disturbance, the state may confiscate your dog and lower your social score. A bad social score may also bring the punishment of publicly naming and shaming you. Well, the article goes on. You get the gist. It is the absolute opposite, polar end of the spectrum of the gospel. The message of Galatians is that the one who wrote the laws and the laws are extended, extensive, is the same one who was judged by the law. He's the same one who came and took on human flesh and was judged by taking our place for our horrific social credit score. Died on the cross to forgive us for our horrible social credit score. This is the message of Galatians. Friends, do you know Jesus? I don't, I, don't, I don't mean do you know about Jesus, but do you know Jesus and do you know the forgiveness of our Savior? Do you know mercy? Do you know that you can be set free from the prison of sin and death? The privileges of the family continue. Last week's title was Family Privileges. If you didn't have a chance to hear that sermon, you can go back. As it's rolling through chapter three, we're just recounting all these family privileges, meaning being a part of the family of God, privileges that are provided to us through Christ. The privileges of the family continue here in chapter four. And that the Christian who was once a slave has been redeemed and adopted into the family of God. We now have the full benefits of sonship, which includes the spirit of God who lives in us. All right, we're going to dive right in. Heirs, not slaves. Heirs, not slaves. Paul really, uh, as I mentioned last week, the chapter break is... It's an odd place to put a chapter break. Who did that? It's not inspired, all right? Like, I, I don't know. How do you break from 29 to 1? Let's go back again, verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Not a new thought, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. So really what Paul's been saying in chapter three, he's now elaborating on that in chapter four. Paul has been showing us that the life under the law, chapter three, and now he illustrates that life under the law with this picture of childhood. 
You see, in the culture of the day, a child was not considered an adult until dad said so. It wasn't as if you came to age 18 and now you're an adult or 21 and now it didn't matter what society was saying. It was what the father declared over his son in this case. He's not an adult until dad says so. And until that point in time, a child was held the same status, if you will, or the same legal standing as a slave. Meaning that a child didn't have legal rights just as a slave didn't. This child might be the future heir of the family's estate, but he wasn't yet. And he didn't have legal rights to that estate yet. He could, no, he could not make any decisions about the estate. He had no freedoms in relation to his future inheritance. Though that inheritance was there, it was waiting for him, it wasn't his. And he could, make, he could not make any decisions about that estate. But when the specified time came for the father to declare that his son is now an adult, everything at that moment changed. It was a huge moment in the life of the child. With that, as the father declared him at that specified time, you are now an adult, suddenly that child entered into new responsibilities, new freedoms. And this is when the child was adopted, if you will, or acknowledged as you are the family, the family's heir. And as I said, it was a big deal. That's what child means here in Galatians. It's the word nepeos, and it means it's an infant, it's immature. You're an heir, but you're not ready to handle the inheritance. Too immature. You own it, verse one, though he is the owner of everything. He's saying, though he's the owner of everything, you're still a child, no different than a slave. <clears throat> And then it goes on to say, verse two, but he is under guardians and managers until the, the date set by his father. So in other words, the inheritance, you could think of it like this. The inheritance is held in bondage. <laughs> There's no freedom. There's no free relationship the child has with the inheritance. And so he's got this guardian, this manager, it's what we call a trustee, somebody who's a custodian over the inheritance and watches over the inheritance, it's not unlike our day. That you set up a trust with a trustee until a certain point in time that, that mom and dad determine this is when the, the, uh, the trust gets released into the hands of the child. He has a guardian, he has a manager, he has a trustee who manages the estate until the future date set by the father. Again, verse two, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set. Well, what does that mean? Or in what way were we a child 
no different than a slave. Well, Paul's taking a a physical, a, a natural illustration, and he's making a spiritual connection to that. So we were once, for those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, you're trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, we were once slaves to our sinful nature. Now here's the thing, a child in this day, back in the day of Galatians when the letter was written, a child might have a bad guardian. The guardian was to be a source of protection, but not all guardians were all that. Sometimes the guardians themselves treated the child poorly. Some guardians didn't do what the father would have intended them to do. Well, so also, we have an enemy, the devil, who has distorted God's law. The enemy uses the law to tyrannize us in ways that the Father never intended. God intended that the law would reveal sin and expose our need for a Savior, driving us to Christ. Satan uses the law to reveal sin and drives us to despair. The Father intended that the law would be this guardian leading us to justification. That's chapter 3. Satan distorts it to lead us to hopelessness. God meant that the law would bring us to salvation, forgiveness, and freedom in Christ. Satan distorts it to bring us to fear and guilt and despair. All of humanity is a slave. You and I, prior to Christ, if you're aware of it or not, you and I were completely ruled by whatever desire mattered most to you. If it suited you to lie, if it served you to lie, you lied. If it suited you to manipulate whatever the circumstances that were in front of you, you manipulated the circumstances. If it suited you to be angry, you were angry. If it suited you to be immoral, you were immoral. Prior to Christ, you and I, all of us, were ruled by whatever our greatest desire was at the moment. It didn't mean we didn't do good things. Didn't mean that we didn't help the neighbor. Didn't mean, doesn't mean that we didn't serve in the soup kitchen. But even that was done out of this, what is my greatest desire at the moment? We knew we were a mess. Even in our worldliness, we knew we were a mess. And so we took up to doing things. We did things just to maybe ease the conscience a bit. We might even have said, I believe in God, but we didn't know God. Now here's the thing, and here's the message of the Galatians. Some Christians are still operating just like that. Trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but still doing things to in some way ease the conscience and to in some way commend themselves to God. You might be here and you might be thinking, yeah, some Christians do that. Yes, we all do. We're all trying to smuggle some character into the atonement. 
all trying to say, thank you, Christ. I need you, Christ. Thank you for my forgiveness. Now let's add some of my efforts to the equation to make sure that God is favorable towards me. That's the Galatians. They had come to a place of faith in Christ. Perhaps you have come to a place of faith in Christ, but still aware of how bad, how sinful we were and we are. And these believers here in Galatia are trying to make up for lost time, commend themselves to God. Faith in Christ and works of man. And Paul is showing them and he's showing us this is to go back under the law. It's to go back. It's to be the child. It's to go back. It's to be the slave. You're not living in the good of the gospel is basically what Paul is saying. You're not a slave. You're a son. You're not seeking to earn the inheritance, the inheritance comes to you by his grace and his mercy. You didn't earn righteousness in the first place, and you don't earn his presence. Having having received Christ by faith at the point of salvation Now moving forward, they're now seeking to keep Christ through their efforts, through their works. You can't earn his righteousness and you can't earn his presence. You are adopted. You are an heir, son of God. Verse three, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul is saying, look, just like this um, physical illustration of a child with his father, in the same way, here is this spiritual illustration that we were children, we were enslaved, we were immature until the right time, verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, all right, the father of the child determines the time to declare you are no longer a child you are now an heir that's the physical father our spiritual father verse 4 but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law Christ came into history like there is, there is a point in time on the, on, the, on the line of history, Christ invaded history, Christ entered history, Christ took on human flesh and he came and he came at the right time. The Father's predetermined time, now's the time Christ came into this sin-cursed world to redeem you and I. came at the right time. Now, there we could dig into this. We, we, could, we could show why at this time was the right time when Christ came. That would require another sermon. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to kind of stick at the at, at umbrella level. Umbrella level. 
came at the right time, think about this, to save sinners. He came at the right time to those who have and will curse him. He came at the right time to be judged. The judge himself came to be judged. God the judge came, took on human flesh to allow created man to judge him. He came at the right time. You know, if you take, if you take the, the, the language of chapter four, he came to the immature child, an immature child, the wicked judged him to be guilty. And he did so in the perfect time in history. God sent his son. And it says he, how does it put it? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That is to say, Christ came and he put on humanity. Born of a woman, born of a sinful Jewish girl at the perfect time in history. The son of God became the son of man. Divinely clothed in humanity. John Stott writes, if he had not been, a ma been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. God, fully man, fully God. You got a category for that? My brain, too small. <laughs> But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Not only in the fullness of time, like all of time, did he come at the right time. But at the right time, he came to you personally, individually. At the right time, the father's appointed time, he came to you. At a point of your history, Christ came to you. This church is mercy. He came to you to adopt you. We'll get to that more in a moment. Get ahead of myself. When he came to you, he made you of age is what Paul is, is unpacking here. He, he made you, this is the time where you will no longer be this child with this guardian. What's the guardian? Remember chapter three, Rick's message. The guardian is the law. 
At the right time, the father sent the son that you would no longer be that child managed by the custodian of the law, but that you would now come to saving faith in Christ at the right time, his appointed time in your life. This is mercy. He made you of age. Why? Why save you? Why save me? Why save the wicked? Why purchase our redemption? And how? Why and how? What was the price to redeem us? Look at verse five. He tells us why and how. Couple purpose words, right? To redeem those who are under the law, all right? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to purpose to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I think we could say verse 5a is how and verse 5b is why. First, the how. To redeem those who are under the law. Redemption is the language of the slave trade of the day. Someone with the means could go to the slave trade and could purchase a slave. And upon buying the slave could then set the slave free. It was, it was their right to do so. It was what you, it was how you redeemed it's not a word that we use a whole lot in our culture, but in a few ways we use it. We use it in sports. We use it in sports when the guy like completely blows it. And later on in the game, he makes a great catch or he scores a great goal. And what do the announcers say? I think I heard it last night in the Dallas game. He redeemed himself. Dallas has a lot of redemption to work on for next year. They can do that next year. Their turn is over. Sorry, Jeff, Steve-O. Who else? Shannon. You redeem with a coupon, right? Well, we used to. <laughs> and it's the idea that a price would have to be paid to then purchase to then set free. It's just beautiful language to communicate the gospel to us in that Christ came at the right time, at the Father's designated time to redeem us. He purchased what was, what was the price to buy you out of your slavery. The price was his blood. The price was his life. He died to give you life. The, he, he, he being the only innocent one who's ever fulfilled the law. And it's, it's, it's entirely because of his innocence that his redemption even matters. It's only because he came and he lived a perfect life that he could then go to the cross, die on the cross, purchase us with his blood, redeem us so that the innocent 
took on our guilt, and we, the guilty, took on his innocence. And if you're conscious at all of your sinfulness, that is amazing. Mercy of God poured out on the guilty. The word justification means declared righteous. Like if you've ever wrestled with that, I don't feel very righteous. That's where sanctification kicks in, where we continue to grow. We're aware that there's just sin in our life. We want to continue to grow and become more and more like Christ. But justification is that declaration. It's a legal word. It's this this idea that, that God through his son, the father through the son declares you righteous, not because you've made yourself righteous, but because he's made you righteous, because your your faith in Christ makes you righteous, because he redeemed you and you've placed your faith in him for that righteousness because he fulfilled the law that you couldn't fulfill. Because you're a lawbreaker. And the law drives us to Christ. It drives us to the gospel. It shows us again and again and again, lawbreaker, 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 social scorecard, failure. Two, what did I say? 20 million cameras? What was it? Was it 200 million? Was it 200? Like, I'm even questioning myself right now. They're going to go for three times that in the next 18 months. Look, it doesn't even touch God. Omnipresent. You get away with nothing under the law of God. And in the mercy of God, he comes to redeem you from the slave trade. You are a slave to your sin. You only do what is your greatest desire prior to Christ. And he comes to pay the purchase price for your freedom. What is that price? Well, the wages of sin is death. Someone's got to die. Christ came to die in your place to free you from your slavery. There's two things happening here. We need to grasp both of them. One, not only did Christ fulfill the law perfectly and thus free us from the effects of the law, free us from slavery, atone for our sins, declare us righteous, pardon us from our sins, But that's not all. It's not like he just leaves us kind of with this blank slate. Forgiven. It's true. You're forgiven. But that's not all. It's not like upon salvation, now you're forgiven, you got this blank slate, and now the rest of your life, you got to work and earn to keep it blank. Christ one forgives us. You didn't earn that, and you don't earn keeping that. He brings us all the way to the end, to that promised land. 
Not only did Christ remove the curse of sin, but he also gave us his righteousness. He gave us the blessings that you earned. No, that Christ earned for you. You were not only set free from the prison to now roam the streets and beg and plead for your existence. No. You were not saved from, set free from the prison to now get on your feet out of your own efforts. Sink or swim. Can you make it? No, he freed you and I from the death row upon which we were, and then he adopts you. He says, you're mine at the right time. He says, I don't simply pardon you and free you from death row prison, but upon your release, I adopt you. And now you receive the family's inheritance. God accepts us not because we're simply freed and cleaned up and now we're getting it done. God accepts us from Start to finish, he's the one that cleans us up. He's the one that gets us on our feet. He's the one who adopts us. He's the one that family privileges, you didn't earn them. It's not that his mercy is unearned, that his grace is unearned. It certainly is that. But the inheritance that is now yours, that's unearned too. You didn't earn that. So in 5b, he says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You've heard me say it before. It's just worth repeating. It's not as if you and I were the cute puppy dog at the pet store, irresistible, God the Father looking at you and going, oh, I've got to have him. I've got to have her. It's not it. You and I are the mutt, mangy. We are the dog and his hair is just stuck to itself and just mangy, street, animal, Savage. There's nothing about us in our sinfulness that commends us to God. There's nothing about us that makes us appealing to God who is perfect in his righteousness and holiness. God didn't adopt you because you were all put together. He, he adopted you because you placed your faith in what Christ accomplished. Christ is what's beautiful. He adopted you. Actually, it'd be appropriate for us to say he adopted you for his own worship. That it's right for us to gather on a Sunday morning. Forget Sunday morning. It's right for us to live a life 
where every breath, God, I live it for you. That we don't just come on Sunday morning, but we go to work on Monday morning. And we go to work for the glory of God. We don't do what we do simply to be fulfilled. We don't do what we do just because, oh, this is the kind of job that I like. And so if I like it, then praise be to God. But if I don't like this job, then... No, we do what we do in all of life for the glory of God. Because he redeemed us. Because we were purchased with a price. I try to imagine the slave. I try to think of... What would that be like if your life is assigned to that slavery and somebody, unbeknownst to you, comes to the auction, the slave auction, and purchases your freedom? We've probably heard stories like that. And the very next thing is the free man says, I want to serve you. Not because I have to, because I want to. How do I thank you? You were not adopted into the family of God because you're all put together. You're you're not adopted into the family of God because because God needs you. Like these are just all these man-centered thoughts that we bring to this picture of adoption. Like God needed me on his team. I don't think so. Because God is love, because God is mercy, because God is patient, because God is forgiving, because God promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, he adopted you. You You're a part of that family tree, as Steve preached. And now those who have trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins, they are a part of the family of God. That's the family privilege. You're not an heir because you're all that. You're not an heir because you're getting it done. You're an heir because God is God of mercy. So Tim Keller puts it like this. Adoption, he's speaking of. This is a legal term. In the Greco-Roman world, a childless, wealthy man could take one of his servants and adopt him. At the moment of adoption, he ceased to be a slave and received all the financial and legal privileges within the estate and outside in the world as the son and heir. Though by birth, he was a slave without a relationship with the father. He now receives the legal status of son. It's a new life of privilege. Yes, it is. You see, verse five was accomplished because verse four But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. All that God promised Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. So all that God promised were the beneficiaries as his adopted sons. Number two, and I only have two points, don't worry. Heirs. What's the inheritance? Let's talk about the inheritance. What are we going to get? We get him. We get him. Verse 6. And because 
You are sons. You see, verse 4 is God sent his son. Verse 6 is God sent his spirit. God sends. And because you're sons, because you've been adopted, because you have the family privilege, because you're an heir, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Not only did the father send the son born of a woman. Not only did he send his son to dwell among us, we were talking last week, right? Not only did he send his son to dwell with us, verse six is, he sent his spirit to dwell in us. He sent his son at the right time to redeem us. He sent his son to free us from the law's imprisonment. He sent the son to die on the cross and to save us from our horrific social credit score. He redeemed us. He adopted us. And then he sends his spirit to not live among us, but to live in us. The Son was sent to redeem. The Spirit was sent to transform. The Son was sent to bring us forgiveness. The Spirit was sent to empower us. The Son was sent to save us. And the Spirit was sent to sanctify us. What do heirs get? What's coming to me? The Spirit of the living God is what you get upon your adoption. You get him. You get his presence. You get what was lost in Genesis 3. You get what Christ accomplished through his death. This is the big moment that Paul has been leading up to through Galatians. Let's just go back and catch that moment. Just going back, just to verse one, catch it in its context. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. The Spirit is living in you, those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, those of you who have repented of your sin and you're trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you have the greatest inheritance in all of history. You have God himself in you. 
you're an heir. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How, how, how did that come to be? How, do, how am I an heir? He redeemed you by his blood through his death. Every time, every time you're convicted of sin, it's because you have the spirit of God living in you. Every time you live out your convictions regarding his word, it's because you have the spirit of God living in you. Every time you have any inkling, any desire at all to give him glory, it's because you have the spirit of God in you. Every time you put to death sin, every time you grow in Christ's likeness, it's because you have the spirit of God in you. Every time you gather on a Sunday morning and you worship him, it's because you have the spirit of God in you. Every time you go to work, and you seek to work for the glory of God. It's because you have the spirit of God in him. You are a son of God. You have been adopted by him. It's the family privilege. You get the spirit. And so he says, so we cry, Abba, Father. This was a loud cry. This was an intimate cry. It was the cry of a child would make to his father. Intimacy. It was a cry of passion. Some call it a cry of feeling. An intimate cry, the Jewish child crying out to his dad, Abba, Father. Anytime, day or night, Abba, Father. That's why we pray, church. Galatians 4 is, is why we pray. You see, we don't pray separated from the gospel. We don't, we don't now suddenly bring prayer as here's my, here's my good work. Thank you, Christ, for what you've done. Now I need to pray so I can add to what Christ has done. No, that belittles Christ. It doesn't honor him. We pray because of Christ. We pray because he provided relationship. We pray because no longer are we separated from the Father, but he's brought us to the Father. He's reconciled us with the Father. And so, children of God, we pray, Abba, Father. We call out to him with this passionate, intimate cry, a child to his Father. The intimacy, my reading tells me, showed dependence, dependence on the Father. It wasn't mechanical, right? Like we turn, we turn prayer into some mechanical thing. It wasn't mechanical. It wasn't polished. It wasn't ritual. It wasn't religion. It was relationship with the Father that drove this cry of Abba, Father. It's life in the Spirit. It's because we have the Spirit of God in us. Worship team, you can come and join me. It's the privilege Prayer is the privilege of sonship. It's what we get to do. The moment we turn it into duty is the moment we misunderstand what prayer is. It is a blessed privilege of being a son. That's my father, <laughs> the creator of the universe. How sad that we would turn that into some formal, polished, mechanical, religious thing. Tim Keller says, actually, all this is implied in the very use of the word Abba. This is gold. Listen up. 
Why would Paul use the Aramaic idiomatic phrase in a letter to Greek-speaking Galatians who probably didn't know Aramaic, the common language of Palestine, because Jesus Christ used it in talking to his father, Mark 14. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ cries out to Abba, Father, It was daringly familiar term to use to address the Lord Almighty for Christ. So when Paul says that we should use it, he is vividly asserting that we have legally inherited the rights of Jesus himself. We can approach God as if we were as beautiful, heroic, and faithful as Jesus himself. All that is his is ours. Blessed Trinity, all three are at work in Galatians 3 and 4. And the implication, verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And the you there, so you are no longer, that's personal. That's you. We tend to think of, oh, that's her, or that's him, or I get it why it would be that person, or that person. No, that's you who have placed your faith in Christ Jesus. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer the immature child bound. You're no longer uh, awaiting the inheritance. Without an inheritance, you're a child of God. You're a legitimate child of God. You are adopted, and your adoption brings you to full rights as sons. Through God, it says. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Through God. It's just from start to finish, God is the source of all of that. It's through God, not you and not myself. And so we don't want to do what the Galatians are doing. And that is they are putting themselves back into infancy. And they're putting themselves back under the law, back under the slavery as their means of salvation. So God, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for all that you have done, all that you have provided. Lord, we wanna live out our days worshiping and praising your name. We pray, amen. Let's stand together. Let's respond in singing.